Welcome back to What's the Point of the Midrash, the weekly podcast where we take a look at a rabbinic text and offer suggestions to answer the question, what's the point of the Midrash? My name is Rabbi Josh Uter, and this week in Parshat Vayera, we read about the destruction of stone. And I wanted to talk about a few rabbinic texts that discuss stone. Uh, the nation of stone and Amora, or Gamora, if you're reading in the English, um, is a prototypical evil, evil uh, country, state, nation, city, however you want to call it, to the point where it's cited several times throughout the works of the prophets as like this really exemplar of evil. And when you have such discussion based off of Stone, where you say it's one of the few category, uh, cities that God not only decides to single out and destroy, but destroys in such a grandiose fashion with the fire and brimstone, there's a lot that it's going to evoke. The Torah itself, when it introduces Stone, doesn't really say a whole lot about it, other than in Breshi Genesis 13.10, that it is was a very lush place that looked really nice, and it's described as Kigan Hashem. It is like the Garden of God. And it's only a few verses later in verse 13 that we're just told, that the people of Stone were very evil and wicked and sinful uh, to God, which, you know, again, is a fairly emphatic statement, but it also doesn't really give us any details. A lot of those details were left to, I guess, unpack or discover from the narrative in this week's Parsha about the angels coming down, trying to rescue Lot and being set upon and all that stuff. But there, again, we're not said explicitly, here's what the people of Stone did. And that allows for, I think, even more creativity because you know that it's really, really bad. And at the same time, not a whole lot of details here. One place in Tanakh in the Bible where we do find an attribution of a specific type of sin is in Yechezkel, Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. zehaya avon stom achotech. This was the sin of your sister stone. Gaon sivat lechem vishalvat hashket hayala ulivnotea viyad aniv avion lo hechazika that she and her daughters have plenty of bread and untroubled tranquility, but she did not support the poor and the needy. In their haughtiness, they committed abomination before me, and so I removed them as you saw. And while I don't think it's unreasonable to make a connection with this word to'eva of abomination with what we today consider sodomy, the context here is not about any sexual uh, transgression, although that could certainly be included. It's not mutually exclusive. But the focus here is of people who have lots of stuff and are okay and don't support those who need. And I think the sages pick up on this in Mishnah Avot 5.10 that gets quoted often, but I also want to stress here that it's often quoted very selectively. Uh, and you'll see what I mean in a moment. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with it, it says, Arba midot ba'adam. There are four types of character in human beings. 
Ha'omer shali shali v'shalcha shalach, the one who says, what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, yours, zomi dat benonit. This is the middle or the common, the, the neutral, for lack of a better term, mida uh, characteristic or attitude that people have. The yeshomrim zomi dat stom. And there are some who say, this is the character of stone. And based on that verse in Yechezkel, we see exactly why that would line up. When people say, well, I got mine, you got yours, and we're okay, that's something that Yechezkel explicitly connects with the people of stone. So it's not surprising to see that said here. Um, it is worth pointing out that the Yeshomrim is another opinion, um, meaning it's you could interpret this as a means of it's a dispute, um, but this opinion gets quoted quite often among those who push for redistributive justice, as I saw in one published work. But before we go on, I think it's also worth uh, covering the rest of this uh, to show that it's not so simple. Um, the Mishnah continues saying, Shali, Shalcha, Vishalcha, Shali, the one who says, What's mine is yours and what's yours is mine, Amhaaretz, is an unlearned person, a commoner, uh, sometimes treated as a fool. Or if anyone remembers the theme song to the In Living Color sketch show, Heavy D and the Boys. Not going into that more detail. Look it up. Uh, the one who says, Shali shalcha shalcha shalach, the one who says, What's mine is yours and what's yours is yours, is a chassid, is a pious person. And the one who says, Shali shali shalcha shali rasha, the one who says, What's mine is mine and what's yours is mine, this person is a wicked person. And there are two points I want to mention about this Mishnah. Is one, when you have these four characteristics, the only one who comes out good is the one who says, what's mine is yours and what's yours is yours. For the two groups of people who say, what's yours is mine, meaning your private property is something that I get to control or dictate, at best, if you're going to be more of the, uh, lack of a better term, communist type of what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine, that makes you an Amhaaretz, which which, while not being as bad as a rasha is being wicked, it's really not good in rabbinic literature. It's considered very much an insult in their whole slew of halachot, of laws associated with that. And the one who says, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine, well, this is what actually makes you wicked, which, oddly enough here, would seem to put you in a worse category than the midat stone. But what this also means is that, yes, the Jewish ethic is to give charity, but the one who then steps in and says, well, you happen to have money or however much money, and therefore I'm entitled to redistribute it. Well, best case scenario, if you uh, participate in the same way that you take from other people, uh, but you give of your own, at best, that makes you an Amaaretz. At worst, that makes you a Rasha. At worst, that makes you wicked. The ideal is you give of yourself and you let other people keep what's theirs, but you don't make claims on other people's stuff. That's not a Jewish ideal. And I think the reason why things get confused is that, as I understand it, the commandments of charity are more of a religious obligation as opposed to a push for economic egalitarianism and total equality. 
whole lot more to say on that, which I can't get into. Um, but I highly, highly recommend a book put out uh, last year by Professor Alyssa Gray called Charity in Rabbinic Judaism. It is a fantastic study of Yes, rabbinic literature, um, particularly the contrasting the Babylonian and Israel traditions uh, in the rabbinic period. So please check that out for more details. The second point I think that's really interesting in this Mishnah that I kind of dropped earlier is that you have a rasha, which seems to be the absolute worst, and in this case is you know seems to be worse than midat stone, because on one hand, let's face it, you know, say, well, I keep my stuff, you keep your stuff. That's not great, but to say that's Midat Stone, when Stone were considered people who did really bad things, and in fact um, were called Ra'im V'chata'im, you would think that that should also be Rish'ut, that that should also be considered wickedness. Yet it's here considered on a slightly lower level if we were making these, um, you know, sort of doing it as a hierarchy here. And the way that I read this is what makes this particular case of midat stone, midat stone, of saying what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, is precisely because it's benonit, precisely because it's so common, precisely because it's the middle ground, and precisely because it gives the superficial impression of making total sense. And I think that's where this idea of stone comes in, because midat stone in this context is something that's insidious. It's something where on the surface level, yeah, this seems fine. And it's only when you start thinking about a little bit better that you realize, hey, this is kind of crazy. Or no, this really doesn't work because, yeah, keeping everything to yourself and they keep everything to themselves ignores charity and ignores taking care of other people. So it is a wickedness, but it's a very specific type of wickedness going on. And I think this was a little bit hinted to in the verses in Genesis 13, where it's described as Gan Hashem as the garden of God on a very superficial level. But it's only when you get there that you say, hey, these people are that these people are sinning greatly before God. I'll give more examples that speak to this directly in a bit, but I want to also point out that we have other examples in Bava Batra 12b of something called Midat Stom, where we will sometimes compel people to act in a certain way um, to avoid them being like the people of Stone. So one example mentioned is if someone buys land uh, next to the boundary of father's property, and when it comes time to divide the estate, person says, hey, give me, I'd like my portion to be along the side, alongside my boundary. Rabbah there says, we force the other brothers to give him that particular parcel of land because to say otherwise would be like Midat Stone, because it makes a lot of sense to this particular individual, to this brother who has the boundary. There's no reason why the other brothers would say no. Rav Yosef says no, that that doesn't work because the brothers can tell that other brother is this one that you like is particularly valuable, whereas, you know, the other stuff might not be as valuable, meaning 
the concern, at least according to Rabba, is you're not supposed to get in someone's way out of pure spite. Meaning if someone asks for something and it doesn't cost anything to you, it's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. And you say, no, we're not going to go along with this, even though it clearly matters to you, but it doesn't matter to us. That's me. Stone. Rabbi Yosef steps in and says, eh, that doesn't really work because the brothers can say, hey, we've got self-interest here as well. Meaning it's not out of spite that we might say no, but there could be a substantive reason, and the halacha is according to Rabbi Yosef. On the other hand, if a father has two sons and two parcels of land next to uh, one channel of uh, water, and one of the brothers owns a field next to it, the court, uh, Rabbi Yosef says here the courts compel people to um, refrain from acting like the people of Stome, and the brother would take the whichever field is in, uh, next to it. And Abai says no, um, because he said, well, the brother, uh, the other one can say, well, I want the number of sharecroppers to increase on the land. And here, Rav Yosef said, nope, that's not a good enough claim, um, that it really doesn't matter uh, at all. And the point here is that there are certain claims that are considered valid and certain claims that really aren't considered valid. And the Midat Stone part is, again, you, someone has a claim that, hey, this could make my life easier, and you would say no, not because you get any particular gain out of it, or at least a meaningful gain, and there's some discussion about what meaningful gain is, um, but as long as you have a reason for doing so, it, a legitimate reason, it's not considered me.stome. Me.stome is when you're sort of taken care of, uh, your needs will be met, meaning the brother who isn't making the request isn't getting shafted in the inheritance. It's just something would make the other brother's life easier, and someone says no because they want to be difficult. Right? So on one hand, this person has a legitimate claim to say, well, you know, this stuff is, you know, mine and you know, this stuff can be yours or we'll split this equally or evenly, however they want to split it up. Um, but here again, that could be on one side a legitimate claim on a superficial level of two brothers could be equally entitled to stuff for one to get in the way of the other for no personal gain then that is Midatstone, because that is clearly operating out of spite. And we now turn to the Midrashim that I really wanted to focus on this week. Sorry for that whole big interlude, but I think it sets the stage pretty well. Uh, the Gemara in Sanhedrin 19a uh, elaborates on a Mishnah that teaches the people of Stone have no share in the world to come. And the Gemara bases this off of Genesis 13, 13, that they were wicked and they sinned. They were wicked in this world and they sinned or they're sinners in the world to come. Rav Yehuda elaborates on this and says, Ra'im begufan, v'chata'im b'mamonam, that wicked refers to sins committed with their bodies, and sinners refers to sins committed with their money, with their property. Um, when he, and he makes verbal analogies with Genesis 39.9 regarding Joseph and Deuteronomy 15.9. The Gemara then goes into a lot of Midrashim and interpretations on what exactly did the people of Stome do? According to Rava, they would give a property owner a, a perfume of balsam. They would put it in the treasury, and at night they'd take a dog and they'd go and say, oh, here's where you keep your treasure, and then they'd dig it up from there. 
Um, so here, yeah, it's not just like a particular type of corruption, um, but it's also one where it starts out by, again, on a very superficial level, that we're doing something very nice for you at the same time, we're actually doing this in order to steal from you and make you a lot worse off. In another story, uh, the people of Stone would say whoever has one ox should herd the city's oxen for a day, and who doesn't have any shall herd the city's oxen for two days. So they gave it to a particular orphan son of a widow to herd, and he went and he killed them. And then he went to the people of Stone and said, let whoever has one ox take one hide, and whoever does not have an ox take two hides. And the people of Stone said to him, what's the reason for this? And he said, well, just as, you know, the ultimate rule is parallel to the initial rule, then, you know, the initial is parallel, meaning going to play by the same rules across the board. Or they would declare whoever crosses a ferry gives one dinar, but if you don't cross the ferry but walk, then you give two, perhaps to support or subsidize those who otherwise would. They would also steal in uh, very small quantities where someone had a row of bricks, uh, someone would come and say, oh, I'm just taking one, that's it. But whenever one does it, you wind up with nothing. Again, here you see not only a type of corruption, but there's a type of corruption that's justified in some way by a matter of logic or you know, by some reasoning behind it that it could seem completely backwards, but you could argue, well, there was some rationale for it. The Gemara on side B, which we actually switched in one of those Midrashim, and 109B in Sanhedrin, discusses four judges uh, in Stome, um, all describing some ways of lying or being a perverter of justice. Uh, in one case, uh, someone who strikes the wife of another and causes her to miscarry, uh, they'd say to the husband, give the woman to the one you struck so she'll be impregnated for you again. Uh, in the case, if you sever the ear of another's donkey, they'd say, uh, give the donkey to the one who caused the damage until the ear grows back. And uh, who wounds another, they'd say, well, give this person a fee is because he let your blood. Uh, back in the day, leeches were considered medicinal. So they'd say, sure, here, go ahead and, you know, uh, you know, charge the money for it because he did you a favor. And again, you can read these and on one hand think that it's crazy. On the other hand, these are all part of a certain degree of logic, a perverse logic, but of a particular legal system. This is corruption, but masked under the veneer of justice, because you could just say on a very superficial level, well, sure, these are the rules. This makes sense. This is how you get justice and this is how you get equity. But really, this isn't equity or justice at all. It's only the superficiality of it. And I think the most striking example of this that the Gemara mentions is the rabbinic example of the Procrustean bed. Now, this refers to uh, something in Greek mythology where Procrustes uh, was someone who would attack people and stretch them out or cut off their legs to force them to fit to the sides of the bed to the point where now it's considered an idiom for any time you try to force someone into an arbitrary situation. Some may remember of Aaron Lichtenstein's a classic op-ed in the Ford many years ago about interring Rav Soloveitchik, his uh, father-in-law, into a Procrustean sarcophagus, meaning trying to make Rav uh, Soloveitchik fit whatever opinion that happens to suit them in the moment. And in the Gemara here in Sanhedrin 109b, we have an example of this being attributed to the people of Stone. 
where they would have beds on which they would lay their guests. And if the guest was longer than the bed, they would cut him. And if the guest was shorter, they would stretch him. Um, and again, you can say this as, you know, a degree of wickedness, but in a sense, this is also a forced equality or forced egalitarianism that superficiality, this is justice. We are now making everybody equal, but you're really not. Uh, you are causing another great injustice and harming people along the way. So with all of these uh, rabbinic texts, the way that I understand the sin of stone is uh, really the dangers of stone, not just the sin, is that it's very easy to be wicked under a veneer of righteousness. If you give yourself the proper framing, you put yourself in the right narrative, uh, that what you are doing is just and you are doing uh, whatever it is, you think it's God's will or you think it's secular will or you think you are in the right, there's a lot of evil and wickedness that you can do that you won't even notice because you've already determined that you are correct. And even if there may be a certain logic to it and saying like, hey, this is what we've accomplished, you could actually be causing a great deal of harm. And I think this is something that whoever cites the examples of Stone for any political message fails to consider that for pretty much any governmental policy, when you're dealing with a population of you know, many millions of people, I think it's inevitable that whatever they do is going to benefit certain people and is going to harm others. And that doesn't mean you don't have policies, but I believe that there ought to be a certain degree of uh, what people say is epistemic humility in terms of what is it that you're doing? How are you trying to achieve it? Maybe look for more, either more modest goals or trying to achieve you know, real justice as opposed to you know, using this uh, uh, idiom again of the Procrustean bed, trying to fit what's right or what's wrong into your particular parameters as opposed to trying to really figure out what's right or wrong on the merits and then trying to work around it. And when there are conflicts, reconciling them and not pretending that they don't exist and forcing one particular ethic on others whether or not it happens to fit. Because I think more dangerous than wicked people who know they're wicked or thieves who know they're thieves are the ones who do so under a veneer of righteousness because then it's a whole lot harder to convince people to change their ways. Because it's one thing is like, yeah, I know I probably shouldn't be stealing. It's a very, very different thing to try to change people's minds when they know deep in their heart what they're doing is correct and for the betterment of everyone, regardless of how much harm that they cause. Anyway, these are my thoughts. Went a bit longer than usual. Hope didn't mind too much. I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of the texts here. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at jayuter. Also find me on Facebook or drop me an email via my website, www.joshuter.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great week and a wonderful Shabbat.